If you'll please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 74. Psalm 74. Hear God's word as I read the psalm. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. In all its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them? Yet my God is king, yet God my king is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a people, a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Taken as the theme of this psalm, um, having regard for the covenant from verse 20, where the psalmist says to the Lord, have regard for the covenant. And it's an amazing thing that as sinful and as unfaithful as we are toward God, we are assured in Scripture that God will not break his covenant with us. We often hear a covenant defined as an agreement between two or more persons, and that is a good place to perhaps start with the the beginning of a definition of a covenant, but we must do some further explaining in order to arrive at what is a truly biblical idea of God's covenant with us, his people. When we speak of our covenant relationship with God, 
It's not, you see, that we or our ancestors sat at a table across from God and came up with a contract and signed it like two businessmen might do. It's really a unilateral agreement, the key word there being unilateral, in which God comes to us and establishes a relationship with us, declaring that he will be our God and we his people. And yet this covenant takes on the form of an agreement because God does require us to do certain things if we are to experience his blessings. The covenant comes to us in the form of God saying, if you do this or that, he will then do this or that in response. If you are faithful, if you are obedient, he will bless you. If you are disobedient, if you turn from him, you will be cursed. As a result, according to the literal, obvious terms of the covenant, we are required to respond to God with faith and obedience if we are to experience any covenant blessings. The fact of the matter is we're not able to meet the demands of the covenant. We're not able to keep our side of the contract, so to speak. We're not able to do those things required of us to experience God's blessings. The history of Israel proves this again and again, Throughout the history of the Old Testament, Israel was a nation of unfaithful, stiff-necked people who from every point of view forfeited the right to experience any blessing from God. And so then we wonder, as they wondered from time to time, does this mean that Israel has no hope? Does Israel have no hope of God's blessing? Does this mean that God did or he might cast aside his covenant with his people? And what the history with Israel proves again and again is God's unfailing commitment to keep his covenant with his people despite their sin. No matter how sinful his people become, he remains committed to having a covenant relationship with him where, again, the key uh, wording from Scripture that really brings out really what the covenant is about. Um, God's committed to having a relationship with us where he is our God and we are his people. What we see revealed even in the Old Testament is how God comes to sinners in order to bless them in his grace. He hasn't ever chosen to bless sinners because of something good that he sees in us. Even back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7 Verses 6 and following tells us very clearly God's perspective on his choosing of Israel as as the nation that would be his people. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we speak of this covenant between God and his people as unilateral because as much as the covenant is revealed in the form of a double-sided agreement, the reality is that we never make a choice on our own to have God as our God. Left to ourselves, we don't want a relationship with God. We don't want his covenant blessings. 
And yet God comes to us. And in his grace, he brings us into a relationship with himself. We come willingly. Yes, we come willingly. But it's because of his work in our hearts. As for our failures to meet our obligations in the covenant, there's really nothing we can do, which is exactly where the gospel comes in, where God graciously takes care of our obligations for us. So that we speak of how our side of the covenant is kept for us by Jesus Christ. God blesses us only because Jesus died on the cross, only because he met the demands of God's law in our place. And so it's only on the basis of Christ's merits being put to our account that we know God as our friend. And let it be understood that God doesn't set aside what is required of us according to the terms of the covenant. He simply meets, he simply meets these demands for us. He gives us the things we need to experience his blessings. It begins by him giving us faith by which we lay hold of Christ and his benefits. He then puts to our account the perfect obedience of Christ. He also enables us to do good works. And it's not that our faith, our obedience, even by grace, it's not that these things ever merit favor with God. But rather, God does choose, in accordance with his grace, to reward his own work in us. And what this means in the end is that the hope of believers in all ages has always been in the grace of God. The gospel in both the Old Testament and New Testament is that God's covenant with his people is never going to fail because God meets the demands of the covenant for us through his son. For the Old Testament believers, it was hope in the son to come. For us, it's hope in the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who has come and who is coming again. Now we see this truth expressed in the Old Testament in how God speaks of his covenant with his people as everlasting, as everlasting. It's not the case that the covenant might fail because of failure on our part. To the contrary, we have such passages as Isaiah 54.10, where it says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And there was a time in the history of Israel that probably more than any other caused God's people to wonder if, in fact, the covenant had come to an end. The event was the Babylonian captivity of Jerusalem, which is the event that lies behind Psalm 74. This was a very dark time for God's people. It was a time of judgment when it appeared that God was no longer going to show any grace to his people. They naturally wondered perhaps their sins were too great. Perhaps God's mercy has a limit. This is how things appeared. And there's no question that the nation was evil. Jeremiah 44 records Jeremiah's words to the people explaining why they were going into captivity. Verse 22, the Lord can no longer bear your evil deeds. The abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. There's no doubt that Judah deserved this judgment of God. It was just that Jerusalem was sacked and the temple destroyed. 
And yet God revealed that he was not finished with his people. This was not final judgment. This was not an, a casting off of God's people forever. Jeremiah was also a prophet of hope who related the good news in such passages as chapter 30, verses 18 and following, where he says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its own mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. And then we have those covenantal words, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Praise God that he remains faithful to us despite our sin. Praise God that his covenant is an everlasting covenant, a covenant that will never fail. It's because Christ has met the demands of the covenant for us. And if we keep these truths in mind, they will help us to understand the perspective of Psalm 74, which, as I said a moment ago, I've taken as the theme, um, the words of verse 20, have regard for the covenant, where the psalmist is calling upon the Lord to remember and to act in accordance with his covenant. This psalm is a prayer that God will act in a way that is consistent with his covenant mercies. We notice that the author is Asaph, but it must be a different Asaph than the one who lived at the time of David because the historical setting of this psalm is much later. And this psalm records Asaph grieving because Jerusalem and her temple have been destroyed by enemies. We believe that there's a reference here. The, the context here is to the time when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. He burned the temple with fire he carried away the people of Judah to captivity. And verses 1 and 2 reflect the pain and agony felt by God's people. Asaph asks God, oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Asaph sees no end to the devastation. He wonders, is there to be no end? And notice how he appeals to God's covenant, though he doesn't actually use that word until verse 20. Yet he speaks of the captives as the sheep of God's pasture. There's no doubt that the nation of Judah deserves to be cast off. There's no doubt but that we, like Judah, deserve to have God's anger smoke against us. Asaph is right to understand that the destruction of Jerusalem is due to the Lord's displeasure with his people. But Lord, Asaph explains, we are sheep after all. We are poor, foolish sheep. It's our nature to go astray, which is exactly why we need a shepherd. Lord, you are our shepherd and we are your sheep. And Lord, this is the relationship that you have established with us. Lord, we are also your congregation. He said, pleads with the Lord, remember your congregation. Lord, we are that assembly of people called out of the world to be your people. We have a special relationship with you. Asaph explains further that we are that congregation which you have purchased or redeemed of old. Lord, you are the one who long ago committed to making us your own. You called Abraham. You called us out of Egypt. 
And to speak of purchasing or redeeming indicates that the Lord sacrificially put forth effort to make his people his own. Not that it's difficult for the Lord to acquire his congregation. Nothing is difficult for God. But his relationship with his people required him to act and to do many things that proved his desire to make them his own congregation. Eseph also reminds God of the fact that as a nation they are his. Lord, we are those you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. And a heritage is basically an inheritance, something transmitted by or acquired from a predecessor, something kept in the family from age to age. And so naturally an inheritance is something of value that a person will not just let go. Notice how God uses this regarding his, uh, his people. Um, God's people are considered his inheritance, his possession from age to age. This is a figure of speech focusing on how God considers his people to be his peculiar treasure and portion. There's a familial aspect to this word heritage. Uh, it's something that's precious that has to do with family. Lord, you are the one who called us to be your holy people, to be members of your family as you called us to yourself in Abraham and through Moses. You have redeemed us. You have delivered us from our enemies many times. Lord, you have made it abundantly clear that we are your precious possession. And then there is Mount Zion, the location of God's city and temple. Lord, you chose this beautiful spot as the place where you and your people would meet together. It's in this particular spot where the atoning blood of sacrifice is celebrated. This place represents your grace in saving sinners. And of course, this is at the very heart of the covenant. As we consider Asaph's words in light of the coming of Christ, these words take on even more significance since we know that God chose his people from before the foundation of the world, chose to make them his own by his purchasing us with the blood of his son, the lamb slain, scripture says, from before the foundation of the world. Because in God's decree, it was understood that he would die for his people. Redemption is not simply deliverance from enemies like Egypt, but the payment of the life of God's Son to deliver us from the greater enemies of sin, death, the devil, the world. The question is, is God suddenly now, after all of this, going to forsake his redeemed? Is his electing love, is Christ's sacrifice going to end up being of no avail? Of course, for the people of of Judah, who are seeing them, them, them being taken captive as a nation, they would wonder, is the Christ going to come? Is, the, is at the very heart of the covenant, is the birth of Christ, his coming, is it going to happen at all? It was difficult for Asaph and the people of God to understand how God's covenant, this relationship, could match with their circumstances. Verses 3 through 8, the psalmist expresses how he is overwhelmed by what's happened there in Jerusalem, especially with what's happened with respect to the temple. In these verses, the psalmist begins by saying to God, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. It's though he's calling upon God to walk with him through the ruins. It's like he's saying, Lord, do a tour with me of the devastation. Do you not realize what's happened? To use an illustration, these verses are something like, 
our president being asked to tour a natural disaster site and someone is narrating to him the significance of what he has seen. So listen as Asaph leads God and us through the ruins, beginning with verse 3. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs, signs there referring to banners. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. In all its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. Your sanctuary, they they set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. And so Asaph is calling upon the Lord to consider what's happened. Your beautiful sanctuary with its carved wood has been demolished with axes and hammers. Perhaps you've used a sledgehammer to knock down an old building or a wall. Imagine someone doing this to your home while you are gone, just to be cruel. It would make you sick. And now place yourself in Jerusalem. Think of all of the work, of all of the valuable materials that went into the building of Solomon's temple. Think of also what that temple stood for spiritually as God's house. If you ponder these things, you can't help but feel something of the anger and the agony and the disappointment that was felt by God's people. And it's when we put this event in the context of the covenant that we understand the great spiritual struggle involved. Imagine how difficult it would be to see your house or to see our church building burn to the ground. Uh, It's more difficult to take such destruction when it's done by people on purpose, just to be cruel and hateful. And surely the thoughtless, unnecessary destruction of property in Jerusalem was in itself hard to take. But what was worse for the psalmist and for all of God's true people was how this destruction seemed to mean the end of God's covenant with his people. It seemed to indicate spiritual abandonment. It seems as if God has walked away from his people, that he no longer cares about what happens to them. And this is the struggle expressed by Asaph there in verses 9 through 11. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. If you have any spiritual sensitivity at all, you know that the very worst thing imaginable would be for God to leave us. Nothing would be worse than for him to take his word away, his spirit away, to leave us to his judgments. Had this happened to Judah, they wondered, has the thought ever entered your mind at some low point in your life? Perhaps the thought has entered your mind that God has left you. You wonder, how long? Lord, you are a powerful God. You could change my circumstances in a mere moment of time. Lord, all you have to do is extend your hand and act. What is holding you back? As Asaph makes his plea, he has more than once set forth how these enemies have directed their hate not only against God's people, but against God himself. It's as though Asaph is saying, Lord, these are your enemies. They are doing these things against you. Lord, we are your sheep. 
your congregation, your heritage. Lord, they have set fire to your sanctuary. The enemy has reviled your name. As the psalmist thinks about God, he relates his thoughts about God there in verses 12 through 17. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures inhabiting the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. I believe here that Asaph is thinking about one particular time in history. He's thinking in general about God's sovereignty over all of creation, over all of the affairs of men. He's reflecting on God governing all of the events of history. There are clearly poetic references here to the Red Sea, the dividing of the sea, uh, the flood of uh, Noah's day, um, creation itself. The, the, the psalmist's thoughts turn to God as sovereign creator. And uh, Asaph's words remind me of Job and of his struggle. Like Job, Asaph has to some degree been questioning God's ways. But now as he reflects upon God, he finds himself returning to his senses. And as we shall see in the series on Job, um, as Job reflected upon God's sovereignty and power and wisdom, he realized that he had no right to question God. Job ends up saying to God in chapter 42 of the book of Job, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known, and you will, you will make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The point is that there are many things we do not understand. We're not capable of understanding them in some cases. There are events in our lives where we just have to submit to God and trust that he will accomplish all his holy will. What I find in the, in the, in the final plea here, of, as we find it in verses 18 through 23, um, here the, the psalmist is pleading with God concerning things that he does know. Um, truths that he can, he can ground his life upon. And as, as we read these verses, we can also, we ought to reflect upon these things that we also know. He says, remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. I'd like to point out three truths that come out of these verses, things that you can know are absolute, things, uh, truths that you can, upon which you can uh, hang your hat. First of all, God will defend his glory. 
God will defend his glory. God is God. He is sovereign over all things. He's not going to allow, ultimately anyway, his enemies to defy him and get away with it. He allows it for a time, but they're not going to ultimately get away with it. The psalmist has a legitimate argument to compel God to respond. He says, a foolish people reviles your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise up against you, which goes up continually. Psalmist recognizes God is a jealous God and he will be glorified. And God is going to say yes to our prayer where we are pleading with God that he would be glorified as he deserves. And second, God is a God of mercy. He helps the poor and weak, especially when they are oppressed by cruel and ungodly enemies. He says something like this to paraphrase, Lord, your people are like a delicate dove over against these enemies who are like wild beasts. Lord, we are poor. You're poor. We are oppressed. We are poor and needy. And Asaph knew God, the same God we know, the God revealed in Psalm 9, verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Or Psalm 140, verse 12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Psalm 145, 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. And we can pray with a full expectation that the Lord will be merciful to us, to us as people, if we are indeed being unjustly treated. He knows, and he knows what, uh, he knows the future, and he, he is going to take care of business on our behalf. And then third, we know that our God is a covenant God who is not going to abandon his people Because of our covenant relationship with God, our cause is God's cause. Consequently, Asaph, in the last two verses of our psalm, calls upon God to plead his own cause. He continues, remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. As the God of the covenant, God loves us. You are his precious possession. He is on your side. He associates himself and is caused so closely with us that our enemies are his enemies. To attack us is to attack him. To have God as our father is one of the glorious realities of the covenant, which means on a very practical level that God is not going to allow his and our enemies to have the last word. We can pray for God to act on our behalf as our covenant God and fully expect that he will. We ought to understand Christ's coming. His birth in Bethlehem was about the fulfillment of God's covenant. It's really a fulfillment of the desire of God's people back in the time of Psalm 74. The people of Judah would be restored. Messiah would come, but there would be a time of darkness. And if you are going through a dark time, pray to God and ask him to have regard for the covenant. 
On the one hand, it seems hard to believe that God would ever side with us and choose to bless us. That should be, in a sense, hard to believe because we are so sinful. We don't deserve anything but judgment from God. And yet God comes to us with good news. His word and his spirit minister to us, as I pray they are even this morning, telling you of God's faithfulness, telling you of God's willingness, his desire to forgive your sins through Jesus Christ. God, through his son, paid the penalty of your sin. He keeps the requirements of the covenant for us because he desires a relationship, a fellowship, and friendship with us. He chooses to love us. He knows we're sinners when he brings us into a relationship with himself, but he takes care of our sin problem. He will remain faithful. And so pray to him. it's It's a prayer that fits so many situations that we face. Have regard for the covenant. And pray with confidence, knowing and believing that he will always be our covenant God because the covenant has always been about God's grace. It's not been about us. It's not been about us in the sense of meriting favor with God. The covenant is about God being faithful to his promises. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would take these words to heart even as we face trials of life that seem to tell us that you are distant or that you perhaps have even abandoned us. Lord, may we abandon such thoughts. May we recognize that you are our covenant God, a God who will love us eternally. You have chosen us in Christ. You have sent our Savior. You have done all that is necessary to have this relationship, friendship, and fellowship with us. You are the one who have established this relationship. You are the one who will keep us in it. And uh, Father, we do pray that you would have regard for the covenant. Our hope is that you will have regard for the covenant, that you will be pleased to keep your promises. We thank you that, as you promised, Christ has come, that he came, that he became one of us, the Son of God becoming incarnate, that he might stand in our place, meeting the requirements for our salvation. Um, Father, we thank you for his suffering and death in our place, an atoning death, earning for us the covenant relationship with you that your word describes as eternal life. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We pray that we would be greatly encouraged even as we daily sin against you, recognizing that the covenant that you have established is never dependent upon our works, but is always dependent upon your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.